Good morning. Today's reading is from Jonah, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. The whole chapter, actually. A great fish swallows Jonah, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah's prayer. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we talked about the believability of this story, or lack thereof, depending on how you see things. Uh, And we won't go into that again except to say that uh, it's okay to say believing that there was actually a guy in a fish for three days is crazy. Now, that doesn't mean you don't believe it um, in terms of the things that can happen. But uh, the bigger thing in, in my mind as we delve into this chapter is that phrase would guide us or that little part of the description from the belly of the fish. I want you to be careful about making everything about you. I mean, we all do that really, really well. But you can draw some kind of bridge to say, and we would say it as a prayer, Holy Spirit, show me what it means that I would be in the belly of a fish. From the place of deepest darkness that you couldn't have imagined you would ever be. So that might be your own fear, your own worries. It might be circumstantial. It might be after tremendous loss. And then you can begin to hear the story. The chapter. This is finding yourself in a place that you did not want to be. And, you know, we live in a very blessed part of the world. We live in a part of the world where many people would say, as we mentioned earlier, that this is where it's easiest to live. I mean, other than the tremendous, there there are other things, the the regular things that people face in life, but of course the tremendous financial difficulty that it is for many people to live here. But those are things often that we do to ourselves. But even if you live in a place where many would say that's actually fairly easy compared to most people and places in the world, we can find ourselves in unexpected places, circumstantially, in, in terms of actual geography, in terms of, of time in our lives, or in terms of 
facing something that we didn't think we'd face. And now we're here. For many of us, those situations can be temporary. Maybe three days in the belly of a fish. Or months or years. As for others, it's often long term. And it's worth mentioning, and every good minister would do this, right? That sometimes we find ourselves in the belly of a fish because of our own choices. Uh, this was this was the way that you know most religious circles you would talk and focus things. You know, let's talk about your sin and the things you've done wrong. Uh, I, I will talk about that, but it's not the big part of the story. Jonah, where we leave him, where we join him this week, is in this belly of the fish. And so the question is, how did he get there? Um, and you can consider how he got there and say it's well, it's partially this or it's partially this. Was it his own fault that he was in the belly of a fish? I suppose, but he couldn't have planned it, I don't think. Was it God's doing? Was it chance? That last thing is, is the one that this book won't really put up as, as possible. There's not a lot of just chance in Scripture. Uh, in many parts, the sovereignty of God is over all. But our lack of understanding that sovereignty gets us into problems. So even in the New Testament, followers of Jesus do things like roll dice to figure out God's will. That's kind of off in a way. But it's there. So maybe it was his own fault. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, Jonah ran from the presence of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. And the word of the Lord said to Jonah, Go to Nineveh. That's what the early verses say. So Jonah went to Tarshish. Now, if you had a map, you would realize that's the opposite direction of Nineveh. He didn't just stay away from Nineveh. He actually tried to run away further. Not, interestingly enough, to get away from Nineveh, though that is certain, but more so to get away from God, which is humorous. To get away from the presence of the Lord, the text says. So, in some ways, Jonah winding up in the belly of a fish is Jonah's fault. But it's also God's doing. God, this is the way that Hebrew language in, in original text, the, the idea there is that God provided this fish. God appointed, I think that's the word that was read in, in the ESV translation that we often read here, English Standard Version. God appointed. And, and that word is a word of sovereignty, right? God made it so that there was a fish that swallowed up Jonah. So maybe it's God's doing. And here is what I would like us to see from a place of maturity, hopefully. There is the need that we would recognize our own sinfulness. Now, I'm saying this not to be in judgment over you, not to shake my finger at you, not to bring up some kind of old religious you know, grid of understanding. It's more invitational that you would hear from me this next statement in a way that you say yes. But you say that with hope rather than despair. And here's the statement. Many of the difficult places you find yourself in are of your own doing. And when a grid is imposed over that, the person who tells you that, you feel like they hate you. And sometimes they do. They're against you sometimes. They want you to see how bad you are. 
I'm not interested in that. But for me and for you, I'm not saying all circumstances. I'm not even saying the one that you have in your mind right now. But many of the difficulties that we get ourselves into in this life are of our, of, are of our own doing. And cheerleaders on the sidelines at those times don't help, though they might be well-meaning, saying, you know, you're just fantastic. You've done it all right. The problem is that other person. But when you are open spiritually, you know, no, and this is the hardest reality. I'm here because of what I've done. Now, we want to move you from that place to see that that can be a place of tremendous hope. Not to make you feel smaller in those moments, but to make you feel something like a resurrection. You're better for admitting this. We won't holler about it. And now let me say this. And this is not often emphasized in religious circles, Christian and otherwise. Sometimes. Your sin is not the big part of the story. In other words, that acceptance that some of the difficult places we find ourselves in are of our own doing is not the thing that we ought to focus on. And sometimes you know, behavior modification of some type, whether it's religious or otherwise, gets you to focus on yourself. Christian faith is going to try, is going to invite you to move away from focusing on yourself. To say, yes, some of this is my own doing, but that's not the big part of the story. The big part of the story is that there's a God who's sovereign over all and loves all, including me, including now. It's, that's a much bigger part of the story than your sin. And we need to carry with us a recognition that in many of the places which we find ourselves, we look to other people, we look at other people. And you see how you do this, right? We so often don't want to admit that sometimes the circumstances are are our own doing, but we're willing to judge others. I always say, all parents know how to parent other people's kids. Some of you have, right, you share with others how they parent their, their, their kids. And in in a similar vein, people tend to know how to identify other people's sin. It doesn't help. When you're looking at other people, you shouldn't take that approach. That's not a Christian approach. You should take the approach. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't have your eyes open to to realities and ways in which you can help them. But it cuts you off from them if you simply say, well, it's of their own doing. It allows you to keep a distance. The Christian faith, actually, in how you treat others, is not going to ask whether it's their fault or not. It is only going to compel you to love. There's a lot of talk about Jesus in that parable of the Good Samaritan and others. We are not, we are not tasked in the Christian faith with discerning whose fault is, is what in terms of whether we're willing to help. The thing that compels help in Christian faith is need. That's it not culpability. So, that's all this intro. To say that God is bigger than your circumstance. God is bigger than your sin. And what I want you to do as we hear this story of Jonah is to ask, we would say the Holy Spirit, but to ask for that inspiration to see Jesus Christ in this story. 
Now, he's not there in the belly of the fish. I mean, he is in a way. But what I mean is that you're not going to see the word Jesus in this story, but that this story would open your eyes to the reality of Jesus Christ because there are so many things in this story that are a picture, a prefiguring of Jesus and his love. Jonah fails in ways that Jesus succeeds. Jonah is three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. That should open your eyes to the Easter story. So just simply ask in prayer, open my eyes to Christ as I hear this. I won't draw the parallels for you all the time. So that second chapter where Jonah is in that belly of that fish, and what happens there, and if you have a Bible with you, you can see this. It's always good to bring Bibles if you've got them. If you don't have one, we can give you one. And those ones back there, St. Timothy's buys those, the other church. So if you don't have a Bible and you want to take one when you leave, just take one of theirs. Honestly, that's good. They'll be happy. They can buy more. They know I say things like that. Um, But if you were to look in your Bible, you would see that chapter 1, it's, you know, block text like prose. And then chapter 2 becomes more broken up. It's a poem. It's poetry. It's a prayer. It's a psalm. And the language changes and the feel changes. And you have to listen to it differently than if someone was saying to you, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and he went and bought a ticket to Tarshish. He tried to get away from God. And then he was on this ship with these pagan guys who worship like multi-God type understanding. And this happened and this happened and this happened. Right? Prose writing. Then you get, and Jonah from the belly of the fish cried out. And then he writes a psalm and we've still got it. And the reality in this psalm that he writes is that it's very human be careful not to sanctify everything even in the psalms what i mean is whether it's the book of psalms david and others writing those psalms or whether it's someone like jonah here you don't take everything that jonah says and says yeah that's a good feeling to have when the prayer is prayed in the psalms i pray that you judge those other nations and dash their children against the rocks you don't therefore go that's a good thing for christians to be thinking It's not. It's how actual people express actual angst. And Jonah has good and bad in here. But the reality of it is that Jonah is reaching out to the one that he tried to evade. And in doing so, he experiences a resurrection. The emphasis is not on sin or circumstance, but on God. Chapter 2, verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress And he answered me. Now I'm back to your life, right? (laughs) Don't you want that last little part of that? I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Wherever your faith is at this morning, I would implore you, direct you, invite you to cry out to the Lord. For Christians, the realization that your life is hid with Christ in God. From the belly of the fish, God answered Jonah. He felt not alone anymore. He tried to evade the presence of God, but the mercy of God did not evade him. Secondly, Jonah is annoyingly judgmental. He's judgmental, and he's sulky, and he's whiny. Um, Many of us here have been part of a religious community for a number of years. We know judgmental and sulky and whiny. We're good at it. 
walking around like like we have the secret of the universe. God is with us. He loves us all in Jesus Christ. And then sometimes just going, this terrible world. As if everything's terrible. Sometimes we can sulk. Even in the prayer, after Jonah has prayed in verse 2, I cried out and you answered me. In verses 8 and 9, he then takes his eyes off of God, even in his prayer. You do this when you pray. I know you do. I've been part of a church for long enough to know that sometimes blessings are masked. Sometimes curses are masked as blessings. And sometimes political points are masked as prayers. And Jonah is praying. He's praying to God, but he does what you do. Then all of a sudden, he's not focused on God. He's focused on himself. So in verses 8 and 9... He says, you know, those other people, see, isn't it great? They pay regard to idols. He's just cried out to God who has rescued him in some way, but he's in this belly of a fish, saved from the depths of Sheol, darkness, drowning, whatever. It's a strange rescue. But he's just cried out to God, focused on God, and now he says, now he wants to differentiate himself from other people who somehow are undeserving of God's love. Those other people, they pay regard to worthless idols. But me? See, see, you get this, right? I, with the voice of thanksgiving. And then he starts, if you read this prayer, then he does this thing that's wonderful. Pastors sin like this all the time. and But you guys do too if you've been part of a church for a while. Then he starts teaching God about salvation. It's wonderful prayer. The truth is that Jonah, who this whole his whole sulkiness is driven by the fact that he finds God's love offensive. God's love is okay when it's for him, but when it's for other people, particularly that he sees as undeserving, well then it's not so good. But the truth is that even as he continues to draw this distinction, even in a prayer of surrender before God that he keeps falling back into himself, the truth is that as this story is written, every person in the story other than Jonah does better at responding to God than he does. Every person does better than Jonah does at responding to God. Those who don't even share this belief. Isn't it remarkable? The sailors, the mariners on the boat, the ones who worship like multi-god universe, the storm god, the sky god, whatever, right? They, when Jonah tells them that this is storm's probably because of me because I'm trying to run away from God, they freak out. Now, they might be driven still by a pagan understanding. That's likely true. But they still turn to God and say, don't get at us because of him. And then Jonah allows them to throw him overboard. That's how he got into the sea. Verse 14 of chapter 1 says, they fear God. It means they, they humble themselves before God. And they recognize God. And they pray to God. And they offer sacrifices. It's in the way that they would understand their pagan understanding of faith. But it's better than Jonah did. Jonah then, and isn't it great in the story that it says, and then the fish vomited. And then God got the fish to vomit Jonah up. Not in Nineveh. He has to then go to Nineveh still. So he's, he's not done with his mission that God has given him to go and preach to against so-called this city. But Jonah is worried that when he preaches against the city, the result will be God's mercy. 
And he doesn't want that. He wants judgment. And so he goes there and he delivers, thankfully, although you might think this is a great sermon, uh, because there's been many more than eight words in mind today. He delivers what some would say is the worst sermon ever. It's eight words. His heart is not in it. It's basically like, you know, you're, you're sinning. You should stop. Pronounce the benediction and off we go. Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, that's his sermon. He didn't prep it. Not a lot of work going into it. And he's incredibly reluctant. And then what happens is the king of Nineveh hears this, hears this word, trusts in God in some ways, or fears God, humbles himself before God more than Jonah does. And so he delivers a full-length sermon to his people. And he says, we've got to turn around the way we live. And you can look at that kind of sermon delivered by the king. It's in verses 6 to 9 of chapter 3. And it's better than Jonah's. He, he, the king, is going to say, we need to ask forgiveness so much for how we've lived that he says, we're going to get everybody to do that, young and old. We're even going to get the animals to do that. We're going to get the animals to, we're going to dress them in sackcloth, which represented like repentance. And the whole nation is going to humble itself before God, the whole city. Let them call out and maybe God will relent, which does happen. God didn't send some harsh judgment. Instead, he relented. Jonah makes this costly mistake. His concept of God is is held too tightly within his system of belief. So that his system of belief is so firm that when something happens that challenges it, he, he sulks and walks away. We must hear this as Christian people over and over again. Your system of belief is smaller than God is. Do you understand that? Or you think you got them figured out? If you got them figured out, well, I mean, if I've got it all figured out. And for Jonah particularly, it's different for different ones. Though this has been a big one in history. His system of belief did not include mercy like God was demonstrating to Nineveh. The mercy of God is always much bigger than we can imagine. Finally, the sovereignty of God. Al Ferguson, Al's not here today, but Al was so excited after the service last week. He's a real student of the Old Testament. And he came up to me at the back. He might have done this to some of you as well. And just went, and you know, it was amazing. Nineveh's part of Assyria, and Assyria's part of... And then when they were judged, and God used them as an instrument to judge Israel, and the Judah, and and all And it was fantastic. He's got it in his head. So talk to Al Ferguson if you want to get some of the historical account. The big picture in it is that God is sovereign over all of it. Cities, nations, and even individual lives. Doesn't mean there's a lack of will. But God's sovereignty is a given in this account. The time, the circumstance, the sea, the nations, the cities. And we must say as we try to understand God's sovereignty that it's beyond our understanding. We hope to not use this to just be ignorant and kind of ridiculous. But if anybody says, I know exactly what God's sovereignty is like. So if I were asking you to question, does God know the future? Does God know what you're going to have for lunch? Well, yeah, it's turkey. But anyway... Does God know what you're going to do tomorrow? Does God... there's, there's a degree to which we would say, well, I don't quite understand God's sovereignty, but I know that he's sovereign. 
over all. Did he get you that parking spot on Lonsdale? Yes. Well, maybe no. I don't know. But I say thank you, God, when I get it. He's sovereign. And his sovereignty is displayed mostly in this story in mercy. He's merciful to Nineveh. But as you read chapter 4, and you should read it, because it's Jonah sulking at his best. He's merciful to Jonah. So Jonah sulks. There's a transition between chapter 3 and chapter 4 where God spares Nineveh. So you get at the end of chapter 3, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said would come upon them. He did not do it. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Oh my goodness. He wanted them wiped out. And he was angry. And then, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 4, you have this beautiful conversation between God and Jonah. Jonah's basically mad at God for being so merciful. He says, I told you so. Read it, you see. This is why I ran. I knew that you're merciful. And now I'm miserable. He doesn't even go, I knew that you're merciful. Thank you, God, that you're merciful. He doesn't get there. And he sits and he sulks. He goes out of the city and he makes a little booth for himself, a little place to sit. And it's all sunny and hot. And the text says that God provides a branch to grow up over him, to grant him shade. And Jonah falls in love with the branch. You know what I mean. Those of you like me who can't stand being in that direct hot sunlight. Jonah's like, I love this branch. It's the best thing in the history of the world. This branch giving me shade. And then God sends, in the story, God sends a worm to destroy the branch. And then Jonah starts freaking out, like life isn't worth living anymore. And God says, you know how much you love that branch? Think of how much I love the people of that city. But God asks a question to Jonah in these conversations. And he says, and this would be a nice question for religious people, probably any, many religions, but certainly we can fall to this in Christian faith. God says to Jonah, after Jonah says, I knew you're merciful, I knew you'd do this, and I'm miserable. And so God says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Isn't that great? In other words, Jonah, you're so religious. You're so convinced about who needs judging. How's that working out for you? You're miserable. Jesus tells a story. Remember the story of the workers in the vineyard? When people who work for an hour, they're lazy, they sleep all night, they don't go to the town square where people come and get day laborers, they don't go there till like way later in the afternoon, and the good, hard-working people that we would say, you should be like them, they get there at like 5.30 in the morning and they work all day, they work their tails off, and then the lazy, good-for-nothings at the end... Right? You know what happens, right? The landowner, who's going to pay them, he instructs his his manager to pay the ones who started working first their agreed-upon wage, and they look at what they got, and they're like, yep, that's what I was told I would be paid. And they're all happy until the guys at the end who work for an hour and barely work, let's be honest. They just stood there. They get paid the same amount. And Jesus says to the angry ones, these are the words. It's like God saying, How do you do well to be angry? Jesus says to those who got what they agreed to work for. 
Are you envious because I'm generous? You're miserable because you can't accept mercy for anybody else. You want fairness, but God is better than fair. Jonah goes off in a sulk. God says, there's 120,000 people in that city. That'd be a lot of people for that time, okay? And I love them. And then the end of the chapter, Barbara talked about this. We had a prayer meeting this week. The last words of the chapter. There's 120 people in that city that I love. And the last words of the book. And also many cattle. Isn't that like God? He cares about my cat. How could he care about my cat? Or my cow? The mercy of God is always bigger than we would think. So God in the unexpected places, acting unexpectedly, a faith that is caught up in the mercy of God. This is growth in our Christian faith. It doesn't mean that we're saying all faith is the same. It doesn't mean that we're saying it doesn't matter. It means that we see Jesus Christ as the one in whom God's mercy is fully revealed. God's mercy for all people. And we ought to seek a faith that is caught up in that mercy, not caught up in dividing people. So a prayer as we close. We pray. I'll repeat this a couple of times. You might choose to pray it from your own mind. Lord Jesus Christ, let me know you in this place and in my life. Let me know you in every place, even those that are unexpected and unwanted. Let me know you in your mercy for me and for others. Let me know you more in each circumstance. Let me know you more in spite of my sin. To know that you are bigger than my sin. And let me know you even when I am judgmental in a way that is not of you. May it be that my faith would be focused not even on my own belief, but upon you. I put my trust in you, my life to you. Help me to see your mercy that is more than I could or we could imagine. Now as we close, I want one more spiritual practice. Okay, you've got your leaf maybe. But on this Thanksgiving Day, Sunday, I want you to picture Jonah sitting under the broken branch. That leafless thing that can't provide shade anymore. Picture Jonah sulking in that place. I'm not saying you're better than Jonah. I mean, we're all broken down. But in this case, I want you to extend the story that rather than moping and being miserable in that place, you now there fall before the mercy of God and say, thank you for your love for me. Thank you for your love for all people. May I know it in Christ Jesus. Amen.